Check, check. Hey everybody, welcome to Homo Latte. My name is Scott Free. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, this is a twice a month queer performance series, and tonight we have performing Daryl Murphy. Let's hear it for Daryl. And we also have performing Meds. Let's hear it for Meds. And if you've never been to Homolache, there's a couple of very strict rules. So the strict rules are, I'm going to pass around the converted tip jar here. Um, and uh, proceeds are split between the artists. I take zero and the cafe takes zero. So we do like it when you eat and drink up. To do that, to get food, you go next door and order food at the salon. And uh, Justin will bring it in. If you want drinks, you just go to the bar and get drinks. Kind of easy. So I'm going to start with one song, and then Daryl will be up. Um, this is a song that uh, from a CD I've, I've put together um, like a family CD, but an LGBT family CD, and it's going to be released uh, late spring this summer. And I feature, I sing on a couple of songs. I've got my nephew and my percussionist kids singing, well, kind of talking on it, and um, then other LGBT musicians from uh, Chicago, or it used to be Chicago, they've moved away. Uh, singing guest vocalists on it, and so this is a song that I actually wrote with my nephew, who was maybe seven or eight at the time. So, uh, here we go. Now, peace is peaceful and joy.
Thank you very much. And please welcome to our stage, Daryl Murphy. some fiction for you tonight, and uh, I guess I have to give you a little background because this is a chapter out of a novel I'm working on. So the title of the novel is In the Blood, and it's about uh, racial identity and also uh, sexual orientation, and the three main characters are a Chicago, a biracial Chicago cop named Ian, his son, Buddy, and this hitchhiker they pick up, a uh, college student hitching across America named Ansel. And uh, this is chapter 10, where Ansel finally kind of steps forward in the book. Prior to that, he was just riding along and having conflict with uh, Ian. Uh, and at this point in the novel, in chapter 9, things came to a head because uh, it seemed as if Ian stumbled upon Ansel in a compromising position and threw him out of camp. They were camping in the back of the Black Hills. So that's chapter 10. Ansel did not need the cool night air gushing in the pickup truck windows to stay awake. The force of Ian's anger and banishment from camp had left him tense and electrified, numb to every jolt of the old vehicle's shock absorbers as they creaked into the dark road curves Stanley took at alarming speed. Neither man had spoken since leaving the camp. Once on the two-lane highway, Stanley had turned on the old radio, which filled long stretches of road with such a din of fuzzing and hissing, caught the occasional faint country tune, then resumed long sputters of white noise. In the dim dashboard glow, Stanley's keen profile seemed to hover above the steering wheel. <clears throat> Stanley's Native American. <clears throat> Where were they going? It hadn't occurred to Ansel to ask. After the humiliation in camp, he had simply climbed into Stanley's truck and been borne away, rootless and homeless, for the second time in less than two weeks, cut adrift from yet another family. Slowly the numbness receded, replaced by a crushing shame. Shame that the moment he had let another man touch his cock, Ian's voice thundered through the tent wall like the voice of God, ejecting him from Eden. Shame that years of restraint had been shattered in an instant. But some restraint. His own father, it seemed to him. Stanley, too. Giving in to Stanley had cost Ansel, Buddy, and Ian the first connections he'd felt since leaving Madison. Disconnected once again, he felt he was hurling forward into that darkness just beyond the headlights. Loneliness, ming loneliness mingled with shame, the two of them like old familiar friends from long before the road had led from Madison and Big Ten football fields to a Chicago leather bar to this ride through South Dakota's Black Hills. Maybe it had started the spring his mother died, that cold wet April when pain finally broke her body while in his adolescent body, there had raged a growing storm. They had had five years to prepare for this death, but when it came, he was still only 12. 
understanding the journey to loss a little better than his evolving desires. She had had surgery when Ansel was seven. She had come home crippled with pain and bandaged where her breasts had been, changed as a mother too. After the long healing, she emerged as one lighter of heart, less a stickler for rules. I need to see you today. She'd say those days she replaced school with an afternoon movie or a drive into the Wisconsin pasture land, loaded picnic basket in the trunk, or maybe just a shared tub of ice cream and two spoons in the living room, on the living room couch. There were a few childhood indulgences she didn't promote. Rules were for those with time. She pulled out and cleaned the old Hasselblad then as well, taught him to hold it at hip, hold it hip high, <coughs> hip high, and find his focus. I planned to give this to you for high school graduation. It was my father's. He gave it to me when I graduated. He knew she had taken many of the photographs hung throughout the house, fields of golden flowers, the Grand Tetons against the steely sky, him as a baby. Only now did he hear about her BFA and dream to be a professional. Or of his namesake, Ansel Adams. Ansel took hundreds of pictures of his mother attempting to capture her spirit and joy. Sometime after the funeral, he'd been given a letter she had written to him months before. What confused him most was that it was handed to him not by his father, but by his maternal grandfather. You should have let me read it first, his father said, his face red with anger. She gave it to me sealed. I couldn't have said what was in it, which she clearly intended. You, she knew you wouldn't tell him. When the time was right, that's what we agreed, Simone and me. Now is not the time. I think she wanted to go. I think she wanted to go, knowing he had his. He knew his heritage. He had what he needed. So the gulf widened between son-in-law and father-in-law while the boy worked to grasp her words. The, op the adoption was a blow but not more than he could handle. He had always been an intuitive child who now understood there had been signs. What knocked him over the edge came toward the end of the second page, after the wrenching promises to always love and watch over him from where she was going. Be proud, my love. The Quinault have a great history. Some of that already shows in you. The moment I stood dwarfed by the old rope rainforest, I knew we had to take you back one day. I hope you will find your way back, if only to stand for a minute smelling the ocean. When you feel the power of such antiquity, you'll feel some of what I've always felt holding you. Quinault, his birth mother's mother, according to what he got out of the adoption agency years later. Her daughter, his real mother, half Norwegian as well. Had his grandmother ventured from Tahola the long way to Seattle, where a blind fisherman had come ashore to woo her? He took to studying maps. Perhaps she had tarried in Hopewim or in Aberdeen. Tiny Washington towns sprung from logging camps. Then his mother made her own journey away from Indian lands, leaving him one quarter Quinault. All his father would tell him was that after years of trying for a child, he and his wife Simone had applied to a Christian agency. Where else would a divinity graduate student turn? They received Ansel when he was one day old. A year later, his father returned to Wisconsin as comparative religions faculty at the university. His father's resentment had always been there, seemed as constant as the faded kitchen wallpaper. A distant man as far back as Ansel could remember after his wife's death 
Dr. Nelson became more critical of his son. Why did he play with his food? Couldn't, be less, couldn't he be less of a lunch? If Ansel hadn't felt adopted before, he did now. The second wife furthered the distance between Ansel and his con connection to a family. Not that she was unkind, but that she took more pleasure in the role of senior faculty wife and mother to Ansel's new half-sister than in understanding a teen who felt himself falling through space. Ansel shiv shivered, suddenly back in a rattle-trap pickup on a dark highway. Blue eyes crying in the rain, static overwhelmed Willie Nelson's flatline twang. Ansel felt the cold at last and rolled up his window, through which the tops of trees became a distinct, ragged horizon in the east. So they were heading north. What would come with the day? Your mother ruined you. Which one? They had fought like rival men do, even when what they loved is lost. For without battle, there was only the pain of Simone Nelson's absence. And for Ansel, the confusion of ancestry. He was now apart, other, changed molecularly, still mostly cowboy, but now also the Indian, and Indians always lost. With this new self-consciousness came a desire to fade into the background but he was not to get his wish. Adolescence brought long, thickened bones. He grew to more than a head taller than his father, underlying that he was from a different lineage than his adoptive parents. No wonder they had remained pale throughout the year while he seemed to tan at the slightest hint of sun. Size thrust him into the foreground. Too bulky for speed, Ansel lettered in the shot put, but excelled most as a football lineman, and slamming body against body helped to quell the storm. As a standout on a winning team, he was recruited by Wisconsin, Northwestern, and Penn State. His popularity was boundless, evidenced by the girls who hoped for a date and the guys claiming him as a friend. The professor dutifully brought the family to sit in the bleachers for every home game, a reasonable substitute for closeness. By then, there were things the youth could not tell the father, especially not a father whose faith and livelihood centered on Christian norms. Try confessing to such a man that your hands had fumbled within Brenda Stewart's bra, that you suspected God to be nothingness. How too often all you could think of was your lifelong friend, Bruce, the once geeky comic book collector who had bulked into the team's second string center. Your pulse accelerated at his crooked grin, the thrilling weight of his arm across your shoulder. Ansel had navigated the perils of those years alone from deep inside his own head. Even, in, even as his mind churned, he was struck by how Stanley remained relaxed, enjoying the trouble his presence created, his straight back exposed and shielded to all adversaries. Not for the first time, Ansel wondered what had he gotten himself into with this man? Who was brave Stanley Barry for? What had he known that allowed him to pierce through Ansel's fear? They had lain as men, and hell had not burned away their flesh. As day broadened before them, Stanley passed the miles entertaining Ansel with stories of growing up on the res. There were hilarious accounts of the young Stanley terrorizing the reservation with his three-legged dog. However, some things Stanley told came off as dark, even tragic. Ansel wondered if it were worse to lose a mother to cancer or to spend your childhood putting her to bed after another long day of drink. No matter, Stanley told all with a smirk as if daring Ansel to be moved. 
But hey, he said, I had basketball, you had football. Sports worked for both of us. He showed no sign of stopping along the road. Ansel felt his own eyes droop. Should we some find somewhere to rest? You go ahead and nap. Got miles to go before I sleep. Great. Where are those miles taking us? Stanley looked as if he'd never heard a dumber question. Thought you needed to get home. I need to get to Tahola. Yeah, big canoe country. I lost you your ride. He stopped as if the conclusion were obvious. You're taking me to Tahola. Sure, bro, you front the gas. And then, damn, maybe Alaska, never been there. What about your job and your dog? You just left him there. Like tourists would miss me. And with a dad like that, that kid Buddy could use a dog. Ansel pushed Ian and Buddy from his mind. At their mention, his regret redoubled in his defenses. We should have been careful. It shouldn't have ended that way. Ian's a good guy. More like a major son of a bitch. Not that I'd toss him from bed. The, truck's, the trick's getting him there without taking the ass kicking. He winked at Ansel. But there's the fun. He pulled down sunglasses from the truck's sun visor. With them on, he once again looked mysterious and a little dangerous, like some Great Plains mafioso, handsomely dangerous. Ansel did not remember falling asleep and certainly did not know this place all afire with sun. For a moment, all he could see was a glint of daylight, and he immediately panicked at being alone in the truck cab. Was his gear okay? Where was Stanley? Slowly, he realized the truck sat parked on the road shoulder. On the seat beside him lay a greasy paper bag containing two hamburgers, still radiating a bit of warmth. He twisted around until he saw Stanley sitting on the tailgate facing back up the highway, hair unbraided and shirt unbuttoned, unbuttoned and billowing back, a sail catching a breeze. His own paper bag lay on the tailgate beside him. Trying not to appear relieved, Hansel climbed from the cab and stretched out his stiffness. He walked back to join Stanley. Good sleep? Stanley asked without taking his eyes off some unseen vision in the distance. Hansel nodded, looking, looking up he guessed the sun to be high enough for well past noon. The truck sat in a low valley surrounded by swells of sun-brown hills. Where are we? Montana. Hansel's heart swelled with deep happiness. Damn, never seen it. Well, here it is. Stanley opened his arms grandly. Ansel knew it was silly, but being in Montana, that much closer to Washington, made a difference. He took another look around. The burnt hills and the close metallic sky took on new weight and meaning. No longer just any place along the road, but that much nearer to Tahola. Across the wide stretch of Montana, the quick dash through the Idaho chimney, then into the green of Washington, his true home. How far into Montana? Maybe 50 miles in. Took about an hour cutting the corner of Wyoming. Hate that state. Not very red-friendly, unless you're talking Republican. <laughs> Thought you'd wake when I stopped for the burgers back in Alzada. You were dead, brother. The truck's screams groaned as Ansel joined Stanley on the tailgate. Too many more days and you're going to kill my truck. What are you, 300 pounds? Stanley pounded a fist against the, youth, the youth's thick thigh. 268. Feels like, like less since I've been traveling. Hitting the road always was a good way to lose pounds. Can't imagine carrying two 
68. He rubbed the flat of his hand from his bare chest to taut belly purposefully. purposefully. Then he punched Ansel's thick shoulder. All muscle on you. Feels good. Feels good against me. But poor Esmeralda hasn't had to haul much in her golden years. You make her work, man. He slid the heel of his hand roughly down Ansel's back. Embarrassed Ansel shifted and leaned away from Stanley's hand. How many days away are we? Getting shy on me? Love him and leave him? Stanley shrugged. Montana's a big state. Probably a day to cross her in Idaho. Most of another day across Washington. Never been to Tohoa. Might take a while to get there. He did some mental math. Say a day and a half, pushing two at the most. He stopped and looked at Ansel. Ansel pretended not to notice. He looked away, letting the road draw his eyes into the distance. What are you looking for, big guy? Stanley said after his long study. I told you, my people. Oh, they'll take you in and all, that's what we do. Probably smoke a special salmon. The Northwest people are into that. But that's not what you're looking for. Not some mostly white college kid who's had it made. Not chasing a gal. Don't want to fuck, buddy. You must want a hero. Ansel cringed at the sexual reference. What do you mean? You're looking for some kind of hero, bro. A noble grandfather or uncle or tribal elder who's going to take you aside, teach you engine ways, turn you into the man you want to be. You ever been to a res? You got what you needed to know playing football. You're full of shit. I just want to know where I came from. Stanley pointed back the way they had come. That's it, bro. You're looking the wrong way. I told you things because I thought you got it. I was born getting it. You told me because I'm you told me because I'm first American. And because this was willing, he rubbed his crotch. That's what we know about each other. The rest is smoke. Ansel sprang from the tailgate, towering over Stanley. You turn pretty mean, he said. And you play too many head games. Maybe. I could hitch to where I'm going. That's how I started out. Look around. When did you last see a car? As if on cue, a car crested the hill behind them, traveled a long stretch, and passed them in a flash. The first vehicle to appear since Ansel awoke. Let's go then, he said. Stanley went to the driver's side of Esmeralda, but instead of sliding in, he reached behind the seat and pulled out a small duffel bag. Come on, he said to Ansel, and sprinted across the road with amazing grace and speed for a man in western boots. By the time Ansel recovered enough to follow, Stanley had scrambled to the top of the nearest hill. What are you doing? Ansel called after him. Stanley's bellow, bellowed answer echoed through the hills. You want to play, Indian? Here's your first lesson. Why not? We need the numbers. Hurry up. It's not a game, Ansel panted when he managed to join Stanley at the top. Not if you're who you think. Tribal elders will decide that. He peered at Ansel as if he could see through his skull. His dark eyes did not blink. This thing I'm showing you, it's sacred. Not for sharing with the outside. You're not Lakota. Bad enough you're from some other nation. But in the world as it is, you're still a brother. Sit. He indicated a spot dead center on the hilltop. Ansel sat. All around their hill, the earth undulated into domed mounds and shadowy valleys, the occasional tree as self-conscious as a stage prop. Nothing else except the black snake of the highway 
making its lazy progress from no known beginning to no obvious end. Stanley squatted and opened the duffel. From within, he withdrew a foot-long pouch made of hide beaded on the surface with long strips of fringe at the bottom. From this, he pulled a long, round handle wrapped tightly in dark leather. Toward the larger end, it was encircled in tawny fur. Behind the fur was a surrounding band of red beads. Next, Stanley went through a short, round bowl made of what appeared to be some kind of horn or antler. You probably read Black Elk. Ansel thought Stanley might be mocking him, but no smirk or smile appeared on the other's face. Stanley remained somber, intense. So you know about white buffalo calf woman, how she brought the Kanupa to the people. Ansel allowed himself a terse nod. It peeved him to have been seen through like any naive white. Black Elk speaks had been his Bible. He had given a copy to Buddy. We use the Kanupa to address the spirits. Tonkasila Wankatanka, the grandfather. Tatai Topa, the four winds. Unsi Maka, grandmother earth. Ansel tried to follow Stanley's transformation from the reckless cynic who scoffed at everything, seemed to fear nothing, and held nothing sacred into this earnest spiritualist. <clears throat> what could be trusted is real. You're going to let me pray with you. You're on a hard road, brother. Still no detectable smirk. Who you are, what you want, the spirit should guide you. Ansel had read descriptions of pipe ceremonies many times over the years, and now he watched incredulously as Stanley scraped old ash from the horn of a real <coughs> canupa. Stanley rubbed ash onto his arms and hands. <coughs> Sorry. Stanley rubbed ash into his hands and smeared dark streaks over his arms. He placed the large end of the stem into his mouth and salivated on the wood like an oboist expanding a reed. Finally, he screwed the bowl into the stem. He extended the assembled pipe to Ansel with a slow reverence. Ansel held it gingerly fearing the very pressure of his fingers might fracture it. Stanley withdrew the rest of the duffel's contents, a tobacco pouch, a long, thick grass bundle braided as thick as a girl's hair, a lighter, a carved figure with an eagle head, and a small, lidded ceramic, bone, ceramic or bone bowl. You must keep the sweet grass lit, he commanded Ansel. His voice had taken on a quiet authority. He lit the end of the grass and handed it over, carefully taking back the pipe. Immediately the grass smoked, seemed to extinguish. Vibrate it, Stanley said, miming a quick dipping movement with his hand. Ansel flailed the glass bundle awkwardly until the end smoldered. Stanley purified the pipe, passing it through the smoke four times at angles that allowed smoke into the bowl and stem. Ansel studied everything, how Stanley stood facing west, cradling the pipe over his left arm as he took a pinch of tobacco, circled it over the sweet smoke, sprinkled an offering to Grandmother Earth, took another pinch, purified it in smoke, and extended it west, speaking long phrases and words Ansel could not understand. Then in English, Grandfather, where the sun descends to black, the spirit world where we will go, where we will all go, and know all that was done, I pray to you. Pity me, aid me, guide your children along the road to wisdom. He continued on in this way, 
referencing many things of the spirits in their black home and the path of the Lakota, sometimes speaking Lakota, sometimes English. Next, he made offerings to the remaining cardinal directions in the same way, uttering similar prayers. North was white, the expansive blanket of snow, home of white buffalo calf woman. East was the red of the morning star and the rising sun. South was the yellow of warm spring. He squatted and touched the pipe stem to the ground, where the color was green for Mother Earth, of whom all are a part. The pipe bowl filled slowly, pinch by pinch, prayer by prayer. The sweet grass went out. Ansel scrambled for the lighter and reignited the charred end. Stanley barely noticed. He held the stem aslant above his head, invoking Father Sky, the true father, as Mother Earth was the true mother. His voice had grown, grown husky with effort. Finally, he pointed the stem straight up, offering the pipe to the Great Spirit, creator of the four directions, of the earth and sky, of all things. The prayers went on. He prayed for peace, for the strength of devotion. He prayed for a clear path along the red road for himself and for his young brother. Sweating through his shirt, Stanley sat, Stanley sat tamped down the tobacco with the eagle-headed figurine and lit the pipe. He took a strong draw, then exhaled a long stream of smoke <clears throat> that billowed and thinned into the air. He repeated the sequence, then extended the Kanupa to Ansel. From his reading, Ansel knew the pipe was the altar of Lakota spirituality, the sacred smoke itself, the prayer. Stanley's supplications had left Ansel humbled, even ashamed to receive the sacred pipe. He felt strangely moved to tears. Pray your road, brother, Stanley told him with a look both solemn and gentle. Ansel sucked in the smoke, knowing to hold it in the cavern of his mouth and to release in humility. I pray, he started, not knowing if he were saying anything right. To the Great Spirit, to Earth Mother and Father Sky, and to the four directions for guidance. He fell silent, then unable to speak of the doubt in his heart. Would the spirits lead him to a place among brothers? Would there be acceptance even when he dreamed of other men? Had he no hope for that he had no hope for that kind of world. He despaired at making that kind of prayer. They smoked several rounds more, praying silently. By now indigo shadows had converged and risen up the hillsides like a cresting flood. Stanley stood atop their island of sunlight and dipped the bowl end of the pipe in each direction, thanking the spirits. He sat, <clears throat> he sat again, cleaning the bowl of loose ash before separating it from the stem. Ansel watched Stanley work, inhaled his musk with the smoke, saw strong ash-streaked arms and how his black hair caught the western sun and that his trim brown chest and belly leaned slick with sweat where his shirt opened and tried to pray away his own rousing. Let's hear one more time for Daryl Murphy. And we're going to take a short break while we get set up here uh, for meds. So, a very short break. Trucking, trucking all the time. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I 
didn't rehearse that one. I don't know what he's doing. Oh, I'm trucking. I had worked on that. Wait a minute. Is everybody here? Woo! Hey, people in the disco party, come see Meds. I want to thank Scott Free for putting in an amazing um, performance, performance show. Well, it's a great song that you played, but um, a great showcase. For Homo Latte, enough for that. Thank you. And in these trying times, music and art is the best connection and the common denominator we all have, and comedy. So give it up to that. And I want to thank Daryl for a very moving piece. Yeah. It appealed to my Native American sensibilities that are somewhere in there between French and black and other stuff that enslaves myself, yet empowers me at the same time. So we're like Ebony and Ivory up here. That's yeah. what it comes down to. All it's a very guy. politically correct set. This is Daryl Hall right here. <laughs> I'm John Oates. He looks just like Daryl Hall. With that, the hair and the big, well, the beard I got, but like the curly hair, like the, the, the mullet. Uh, when you had the long blonde hair. If I just shaved this with a stash, it'd be like, that's Hall and Oates. If I could grow a really dark mustache. It would be all then you'd be, yeah. It would completely. Carol Hall never had. Well, Carol Hall never had a mustache. No, he did not. No. Saying Oates, I'm Oates. Okay, you're Oates. Yeah. <laughs> you're Hall. Now you're doing the inverse. You're doing like a negative photograph right now. Yeah. Well. Well, that was our uh, that was our intro number. Thanks. All right. Improv. So, uh, how's everyone feeling? Yeah, hey, about 15 more days till spring. Feeling like it? Okay. Not really, though. So we're Meds. We've been in Chicago for a minute. We've been in a uh, lot of bands, but this is the duo of choice, and uh, we're hoping to rock your socks off tonight and uh, make it sunny on the inside. I just made that up. This is for the purple one. Love it. 
Thank you for playing along.
juked to it. But this is a smooth adult crowd right here. It is. Uh, we're gonna roll it the fuck out. What, what do you, I know you, you got something to shout. You. Right after this one. <laughs>
Courtesy Flush. Sharp and Danny. Matt, thank you so much for having us. God bless Rastafari. One more time for Mads. Let's hear one more time for Daryl Murphy. And if you do not contribute to the beautiful tip jar here, please do so. And let's see, our next show is, I'm going to say March 20th. It's the third Tuesday. Um, and it's going to be an all music night. We've got Homer Mars performing and Ed Gershon will be performing. So that is on March 20th, so please come to that one. And thanks for coming to this one. Good night. And as usual, Ben Sand has no merch to sell.
they left the uh, they let the NHA, NFL uh, draft pick uh, players out tonight, and they're here in the back. That was, that was a horrible joke. We're done.